it was back in November 2004, November 28th to be specific, that uh, Shri and I and uh, one-year-old Brianne at the time were visiting with all of you with a view to me becoming uh, the pastor of Alts Chapel. And that morning, uh, Shri and I spent with the young adult Sunday school class in the fellowship hall. And um, for the last few minutes of our, our session together that morning, I had the opportunity to, to ask the class some questions and uh, for them to ask me some questions. Um, and so I was asking, you know, what the class, what the, the church family really wanted in a pastor. And um, then they asked me, you know, what do you want for our church? And so I had them turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Moses, in this passage of Scripture, in verse 18, cries out, Please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And I told the class then, that this is what I wanted for All's Chapel. And what I wanted then is the same thing that is, it's my all-consuming burden today. And of course, the burden is heavier. It has increased ever since then. This is what I want for every single person who calls All's Chapel home, who is a part of this family. It doesn't matter if you are in your sunset years of life. It doesn't matter if you're in elementary school or even younger. My my prayer to God is that He would give us in our hearts the same cry that Moses raised up to the Lord. That every single person cries out, this is the, the great desire of our hearts. Please show me your glory. We want to see God. That's what I want for this church more than anything. Even more, of course, than I want it. This is what God wants for us. He wants us to have this kind of heart. This is why the Holy Spirit has been given to us, that we would have this kind of heart and this kind of longing, and we would, and then in turn, have a vision of God, a true vision that will drive out every idolatry, every lesser desire of our hearts, and seek God and Him alone. The people of God here were in desperate straits for His presence, and... And we are as well. Uh, we, need, we need to pray. Before we get any further, that's what I want to do together. Let's bow our heads. Let's bow our hearts before God. Father, we are in desperate straits. We need you for everything. For every breath. For every thought, no matter how passing. For every motion of our bodies. And we need you, Father, so that our hearts would be inclined to you, away from ourselves, the pleasures of the flesh and the pleasures of this world, and turned to you. We need you. I pray, Father, that according to the abundance of your steadfast love and grace in Christ, you would give to us the heart 
and the prayer of the heart that you gave to your servant Moses that compelled him to cry out to you, please show me your glory. I pray, Father, that we, we together would raise up that prayer to you constantly, not just today, not just when we gather together as a family of believers on the Lord's Day, but in all of life, in, in every different aspect of our lives, in every different realm, in the community, in our jobs, in our homes. I pray that it would constantly be our prayer for ourselves and for one another that we might see the glory of God. I pray, Father, that you would bring revival to us. There are so many distractions and competing voices clamoring for our attention. I pray that your voice would be the loudest voice and would silence every other. I pray that every other desire for something other than you in our hearts would be subdued by your power. I pray, Father, that you would do a great work in this church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The people of God in Exodus 32, 33, and 34 find themselves in desperate straits. Moses has just returned from his, his trek into the mountain where he has met with God. He has received from God the terms of the covenant. They have been scripted by God himself onto the two tablets of stone. And Moses returns then only to find the people of God fresh off their own commitment to obey all that the Lord has spoken. You remember Exodus 19 and Exodus 24 They said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. They have just made that commitment. And now Moses returns from the mountain, having received God's law, to find them dancing before, singing to, and prostrate before the God, the small g God that they are claiming has delivered them from Egypt, this golden calf. Moses is absolutely furious. He smashes the two tablets of stone at the foot of the mountain, in what was definitely more than just a fit of rage. It was a very heavily symbolic action, this smashing of the two tablets of stone. Because the people of Israel have just smashed the covenant that God made with them. He said, if you obey me, you will be my holy people. You will be a kingdom of priests, a treasured possession above All the nations of the world, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, you will be cursed. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then they turned the image. They turned the glory of God. They exchanged the glory of God for this image of a beast. God's response to this was fury. He indicated to Moses that he was going to consume them in his white-hot anger. Moses interceded. Moses said to the Lord, What will the world say? What will Egypt say? You have just redeemed this people out of 400 years of bondage. They will say, if you consume them completely now, God had indicated he wanted to start again with Moses. He said, if you consume them completely now, 
They will say, the world will say, that you only brought them out to destroy them in the wilderness. God relented. The wicked, however, were consumed by the sword and by a plague. Those who had bowed the knee to this golden calf were consumed that day. And so God promised Moses that he would see to it that his people would get to the land that he had promised their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he himself would not go with them. He would send his angel to go. This was not enough for Moses. Moses, he has this boldness. It's really a trust that he can, in a sense, understand what I mean, argue with God. You have to understand what I mean. Don't Please don't misunderstand. It's because of his trust, because of God's word. He can go back to God with the, with the, the unshakable, unbreakable promises of God. And so he says, but God, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, he said, you have made us distinct. We are your holy people. We're set apart to you from all others. And what makes us distinct, he says? It's your presence. It's you with us that makes us distinct from all the peoples of the earth. And so God says to Moses, I will, I will go with you. I myself will bring you into the land of promise. And still, this is not enough for Moses. This is where he says, he wants a a sign of the presence of God. He wants to know that God knows him and his favor is upon him. And so he says, please show me your glory. And hold on just a second. What more could a mortal man see of God that Moses has not seen already? We are talking about the man whom not too long before this was drawn near to the burning bush that was not consumed. The fire of God from which God spoke, from which the I am spoke. We're talking about the man who is a first-hand witness of the power demonstration of God over the false gods of Egypt. We're talking about the man who God used to lead his people through the dry land, the path of the Red Sea that was opened up wide for them and then consumed their enemies behind them. We're talking about the man who went up into the mountain with God and, and saw, he had already seen something that the Bible describes in, in apocalyptic terms, in, in using imagery and, and symbolism. He had already seen something that no man had ever seen before, excepting perhaps Adam and Eve in the garden. We're talking about the man who went into the tent of meeting, to which God came down in the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And the Bible says, God spoke to Moses like a man speaks with his friend. We're talking about the man who had communed with God like no man has ever communed with God, excepting, of course, the Son of Man who has come from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. And here is Moses, having had all these experiences, these revelations of God, now saying, I want to see from you something I have never seen before. 
something that is above and beyond what you have shown to me before, please show me your glory. This is not just a man who wants excitement. He doesn't just want a show. He wants God. His heart is famished to be ravished with a vision of the glory of God. I want you to see the response. The Lord says to him in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Let's continue on into chapter 34 and look beginning in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him. And proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. As I was reading those words, which the Lord, the Lord proclaimed, I was thinking, this, this voice is not fit to proclaim what the Lord Himself voiced about Himself. This is the burden that consumes me for myself and for my family and for this church family. That we would all have this heart cry. Please show me Your glory. Everything else is less than this. There is nothing before this. There is nothing beside this that is worth worth pursuing in this life. What are we after? What are we crying after God for? What is the prayer that most often escapes your lips? Would you turn in your Bibles to John 17? John 17 is Jesus' prayer for himself, Jesus' prayer of intercession for his disciples, and it's also his prayer for all those who will believe on Jesus through the word of his disciples, his apostles. So this prayer then, as he closes, his, closes it out, is for you and for me. Robert Murray Machane, a great Scottish preacher from the uh, 
early 19th century, said, if I could hear the Lord Jesus Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear, and I can't remember the exact number he used, but I believe this was it. He said, if I could hear Jesus Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear 10,000 enemies. And he is praying for me. He is praying for me. Jesus makes one last request in verse 24. And again, it's a prayer for the original disciples who are with him and all the disciples who would believe on Jesus through their word down through the centuries. So this is for you and me. Let's set this up. Let's think about this. Jesus is about to be rested. This is his last request. It's going to be big, isn't it? It's going to be the climactic prayer. It's going to be the ultimate desire on Christ's heart for his people. It's something which we should long to be realized in our lives more than we want anything else to be realized in our lives. And I want to know, are you glad that he prays these words? Not just, not just glad, a little bit glad. Are you overjoyed with this? Is this the desire of your heart as well? He says in verse 24, John 17, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I think that this is the be-all and the end-all prayer. I, I think that everything else that Jesus asks for his people in John 17, and there are many things such as our protection from the evil one, our sanctification, and our unity is ultimately fulfilled in this last climactic request. And if you, honestly, if, if you could have Jesus ask for you one thing, what would it be? And I know this is a crude analogy, but I think of, I think of the, the whole genie in the bottle myth where you have three wishes, right? And you, maybe you've seen in, in comedy, on television and movies, people completely blowing their first two wishes. Like, uh, well, whatever. They completely blow them. Then they have one last thing to ask. Oh my goodness, this is big. I've got one last request. What in the world do I ask for? I'm not saying, you know, God is not a genie in a bottle. But I'm saying, what I'm saying is, this is Jesus' last request for us. What do you want it to be? What do you want to hear come from his lips? Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. It's the exact same prayer that Moses prays back in Exodus chapter 33. Please show me your glory. That's the heart desire of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and for I. You and me. Put it grammatically correct. Excuse me. For you and for me. To see him. To be with him forever. And to forever see his glory. That's what he wants for us. That's his great love for us. Theologians in the past have called this the beatific vision. 
using a little bit of Latin in there. It means bliss. The most blissful of all visions. To see Jesus in His glory. To see the face of God. That's the beatific vision. That is the best thing that we will ever see. This is the return of paradise. This is the greatest of all blessings. This is why God, I believe, this is why God gave humans desire that we would want this. This is why God gave human beings eyes that one day we would lay our eyes on Him. This is why He gave us hope that we would set all of our hopes on this, seeing the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is it. Jesus. Jesus. You remember David in Psalm 16? He says, At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I am saying to you that the pleasures forevermore that are at the right hand of God is Jesus. Jesus is the pleasures forevermore. So, do you want to see Jesus like Jesus wants you to see Him? I'm not saying as much. I'm not saying, do you want to see Jesus as much as Jesus wants you to see Him? Because I do not believe it's possible for us as human beings and sinners to want anything as much as God wants something. But I mean, do you want it like He wants it? That is, do you long for this? Are all your hopes set on this? Do you long to see Christ? Well, I have good news for you. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here is the good news. The foretaste of this has come. The manifest glory of God has entered into time and space. The foretaste of the beatific vision has come. And although that foretaste was only here for a season, it is not the end of the revelation. The revelation of the glory of God has come. And it has departed. It has returned into heaven. But the revelation has not concluded. Because God has sent His Holy Spirit. And His Holy Spirit removes the veils that lie over our hearts. The Holy Spirit drops the scales that lie over our spiritual eyes. So Paul claims at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. For what? Freedom to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We may see Him. We may see Him now. It is not yet the fullness of the revelation of the glory of God. It is not by eyesight that we see Him. It is by faith sight that we may now see Him. And that is good news. Listen, look at what 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 claims. The God of this world, the small g, God of this world, has blinded the minds 
of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The glory of God has been manifested in time and space through the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at what the Apostle Paul calls this. He said it is the gospel of the glory of Christ. In other words, he is saying to us, there is good news for all people. It's like the angel's announcement at the birth of Jesus. Good news of great joy which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The good news is this. I want you to look at these words and put them together because you, have, you may have never put these phrases together before. It is the gospel of the glory of Christ. The good news of the glory of Jesus. That is the good news to the world. That God in His Son has manifested His glory. And by His Spirit, though Jesus Christ has returned to the Father, we may behold Him through the eyes of faith, through that spiritual sight, uppercase S spiritual sight, Spirit-given, Spirit-enabled. We may see Him. How is this possible? Verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We may see him by eyes of faith now. Is that good news to you? Is there some other word that you would rather hear than the good news of the glory of Jesus? That we may see him now. Is there a better word? That's the gospel announcement. This is the good news from God. It's glory. Glory has come. We may see God in the face of his son. Now, none of us will on this earth, as long as we live, see all that we want to see. But I'm telling you, I, I'm, I'm not above begging. I'm pleading with you to make this your prayer. To see the glory of God in the face of His Son. The glory of God in the face of Jesus. Pray this. Always. Don't stop praying for this and pleading for this until your, until your last breath. Pray it with, with your last breath. Pray this for your children. We pray for many temporal goods. We, pr we pray for the, the safety of our children. We pray for the success of our children. We pray for their prosperity and, and so on. Pray this for your children. This for your grandchildren. This constantly for your church family. That everyone, without exception, would have this as their heart's cry and the answer to their prayers. That they also see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Ask. And Jesus will be given to you. Seek, 
and you will find Jesus. Knock and Jesus will be open to you. Pray that God would give to you His Spirit. This is why I, I constantly pray, give to us your Spirit. Because the answer is, the answer from God when He gives us His Spirit is that He gives us by His Spirit eyes to see His glory in His Son and hearts to exalt in Him alone. Do you think that you need to see the glory of God in Jesus? Do you think that this is your greatest need? Do you know that? Is that conviction in your heart? This is all that I need to see the glory of God in the face of His Son, Jesus. I think a lot of churches that are gathered today want something different than an exalted message of God. They want something other than simply a vision of God in His glory through Jesus. They want something other. I, I don't think that I'm an impractical preacher, but I think that sometimes people think practical means spelling out a sequence of steps which you can take by which you can be more fulfilled in life. You know, seven steps. This would get a lot of reads or a lot of listens online. Seven steps to a better Monday. Who doesn't want a better Monday, right? I want a better Monday. And that's the kind of thing that people, yeah, I want to read that. Get, tell me these seven steps. Give me something that I can do so that I can be a better employer or employee or spouse or have a more advantaged, prosperous life, whatever. And, and I'm not saying that those things are necessarily bad in themselves. I'm saying that those things are temporal goods. And really, they're not the practicality that we need. It's not that we can learn to follow a sequence of steps to, to produce true change and transformation in our lives. If you look at what Paul wrote at the end of 2 Corinthians 3, he says, this is what changes your life. When you behold the glory of God, you are transformed from one degree of glory to another into that image. That's change. That's transformation. You want to talk improvement or success or true prosperity or whatever. That's it. That's, that's my, my interest. That's my burden. That's what I, I want to give to you. That's the calling of the preacher of the word of God. To give a picture of the glory of Christ in the word of Christ to the people of Christ so that they are transformed into the image of Christ themselves. That's what preachers are called to do. That's what I want to give you. For as long as God would have me here to help shepherd this people along, that's what I want to give to you. I hope that's good for you. I hope you're satisfied with that. Because comparatively speaking, this is going to be a landmine for misunderstanding, but I think I can clear it up. I mean comparatively speaking. I'm not interested in your success. I, I pray for those things, believe me. 
But comparatively speaking, I'm not interested in your feeling advantaged or being improved in in certain areas of your life. Again, I pray for those things. But what I really want is for you to long for God. I want you to hunger and thirst after God. I want it to be your prayer. Please show me your glory. I want you to be satisfied with Christ. I want every single person in who gathers on the Lord's Day as part of this family to be famished, to be ravished with Christ and Christ alone. That's what I want for you. And that, again, that's what leads to change. That's what leads to true transformation, is beholding the glory of God in the face of His Son. Everything else is too small. We are far, as C.S. Lewis once said, we are far too easily pleased. We're chasing after all these temporal goods. We make all these temporal goods the, the focus of our prayers. When the focus of the prayers of the Word of God is on the glory of God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is the cry of the Bible that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. That's what the people of God must cry for. Cry, Lord Jesus, come and come quickly. Lord Jesus, we want to see you. It's that, that vision of the glory of God in Jesus that drives out every other competing desire. Every rival is driven out. The heart that is filled with this longing doesn't have room for worldly desire. We want Christ. This is true revival. When the people of God want to see the glory of God more than they want to see anything else, any temporal glory, worldly glory, self-exaltation, when we want the glory of God, when we want His purposes, His aims for this earth, that will be revival. Let's pray this. Let's pray it with Moses. Please show me your glory. And so, this message is an invitation and it's an introduction to a series. I told you some time ago, a few months back, I hinted at it. I, I wasn't uh, at the time planning on saying it. I just We came to Exodus 33 and 34 and that revelation that God gave to Moses and I told you this is a key revelation to knowing God. It is one of the linchpin revelations to knowing God in the Bible. That is, without this, I don't think we would know God as we do. And I say that because the people of God took what God revealed to Moses and they ran with it. They never, in all of their faithfulness, they never forgot it. And so I said then that I would just love to go through the Old Testament and blow up, and I don't mean explode, I mean like zoom in and enlarge and examine in detail, like a blow-up photograph, every time the people of God, well, not every time, I think that would really be impossible for a sermon series that would be under two years long. (laughs) I want to, but I want to go through the Old Testament and, and blow up all of these echoes of Exodus 33 and 34. You see, back, um, going forward in, in the book of Numbers, God when his people are on the brink of the promised land, um, 
Sometime later, God again looks to consume them. And Moses pleads with God. And he says, save your people. And, and what does he use for the basis of his plea? He goes back to what God showed him in Exodus 34. And he said, you said this. You said you are the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Will you not forgive us? And God forgave. The psalmist really grasped hold of this revelation. And it literally took their songs and their prayers to new heights. And I know I'm not using that word literally inappropriately. I mean it. And I'll show you when we get there what I mean. But David especially. I don't know if there was another passage in the Old Testament that informed David more about who God was, who God is, more than what he said to Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. Because you find it echoed all through David's Psalms, and you find him in three Psalms specifically, Psalm 86, Psalm 103, and Psalm 145, if you want to look ahead to where we might be going. He, he goes back to what God says, and it just informs all of David's praise. So other psalmists as well do the same thing. Nehemiah, later on in Israel's history, Daniel also will use this revelation to Moses as the basis of their confession to God and their pleas for salvation. This revelation of God, that he is slow to anger, a God of mercy and grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and for, and faithfulness, is the basis for the pleadings of Joel to the people of God. It is the basis for promises that we find in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Micah. And it actually, this revelation, even sends one of the prophets into depression. It makes one of the prophets seriously pout and wish that he was dead. And where does this all climax? In the person of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment. I know that time is getting on. There's something I really, really want to give you. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. At the end of John chapter 1, there is an exchange between Philip and Nathaniel and then Nathaniel and Jesus that shows us how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Moses wrote, including Exodus 34. Philip goes to Nathanael. Jesus has just called to himself Andrew. Andrew went after Peter. And he calls Philip. It says, um, he says to Philip, follow me. And then Philip goes to Nathanael. It says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't give you the verse. I'm starting at verse 43. We're ending in 51. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. This, of this, this, this statement by Philip 
after he has just caught glimpses of who Jesus is, is an incredible spirit-given faith that is given to Philip here. We, we have found the one of whom the whole scriptures are about. Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The hick town, the backwater town, nobody has anything good to, you know, that's the kind of place you just avoid. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I, and I find here echoed, it says back in Exodus 33 that the Lord promises He will make all His goodness pass before Moses. Now Philip is saying Moses wrote about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel is asking, can anything good come out of Nazareth and I'm, I'm reading between the lines, but I think we can very safely and with conviction conclude that the goodness that comes out of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all the goodness that God made to pass before Moses. So let's continue reading, beginning in verse 47. Nathaniel came. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And I think that we can infer that this he was not actually there. Jesus was not physically actually present in the vicinity of, of Nathaniel, and so Nathaniel is getting this idea that he is all-seeing and all-knowing. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. My prayer is that what Jesus promised Nathaniel would see, you also would set your hearts on, that you would make this your prayer. Because Jesus is talking about Himself. He's talking about His glory. Okay, I'm not going to have you turn there. But back in Genesis 28, Jacob is on the run because Esau, his elder brother, wants to kill him. He wants to kill him because with his trickery and an alliance with his mother, Rachel, Jacob has swiped from Esau the blessing of their father Isaac when it should have been going to to Esau. And so now, of course, well, not of course, I think it's a little bit over the top, but Esau wants to kill him. And so... Jacob runs, and he comes to a place called Luz. If you see Luz on the sign of a town, you're not going to get an idea, I think, of a town that's amazing. All right? I'm just, I'm just saying. So that night, Jacob lies down to sleep, and he uses the rock for his pillow, and he has a dream. And in that dream, God comes to him, and he promises him 
that he will have the promises that were given to his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. The land, descendants, the land, and from that family, blessing to all the families of the earth. And this is what Jacob says, or what is said of Jacob. He dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Why do you think that Jesus says that Nathaniel would see the angels of God ascending and descending upon him? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of what Moses wrote. Moses wrote about Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. The revelation of God that we find before his actual coming to earth is about him. He fulfills it. He is the ultimate. He is the image of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. In him we see God. You have seen me, he said. You have seen the Father. And Jacob's reaction was this. How awesome is this place when he woke up? How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So let's forget the name Luz, and let's call this place Bethel, the house of God. What is Jesus saying? He is saying to Nathaniel, you will see greater things than these. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. That's what he was saying to Nathaniel. And I'm picking up from Philip what he said to Nathaniel, and I'm saying to you, come with me. And see. Let us see. Let us see the greater things that are in Jesus. Let us realize in every heart that He is the awesome place. He is the dwelling place of the glory of God. He is the gateway to heaven. Friends, my church family, Today, today, we can see. We have been given the Holy Spirit to drop the scales from our eyes and to lift away the veil so that we can behold the glory of God in the face of His Son. Paul says it's the gospel. It's the good news of the glory of Christ. Is it to you? Is it to you? Is this your prayer? Please, show me your glory. Father, hear our cry and make this the cry of all. Please show us your glory in the face of your Son. Give to us your Holy Spirit that we may have for ourselves truly those eyes that see Jesus with true perception. We want to see all that we can see for this life. Please don't withhold from us. Be merciful to us. And make us to see 
glory in Jesus. I pray that this would be our all-consuming desire. Please answer our prayer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.